Well, good morning, everybody. May I say it's uh, great to be with you once again. We're coming to the end this morning of our time studying the Sermon on the Mount together. I think it's been 12 or or 13 weeks. It's been a great privilege for those of us over in St. Andrews, me and Hamish, to be with you over the last few months. We continue to pray for St. Pete's during your vacancy, and uh, we'd love to do anything we can to help you as time goes by. But as I say, Matthew chapter 7 Once again this morning, we're looking at the second half of it, verses 13 to 29. And as you turn there, Matthew chapter 7, let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, we want to praise you for the wonderful life-giving quality of your word. Thank you that it opens our eyes, that it makes wise the simple, that it indeed gives life that it transforms by the power of your spirit. We want to pray that it would breathe resurrection life into us this morning, that it would protect us and guard us and lead us in the way of following the Lord Jesus Christ. Please do all that in us by your spirit for our good and for your glory. Amen. Matthew chapter 7 and verses 13 to 29. Jesus, drawing this great sermon to a close, says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thorn bushes? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. It'd be great if you might keep that open in front of you. 
And a part of our aim this morning is for us to end up where the crowds did in verse 28, that we would be astonished at the teaching of Jesus because of the unique authority of his words. We know that our airwaves are full of people telling us what is right and wrong with the world, telling us what we should believe and how we should live. It's a role that the church used to fill in society. But those days are long gone, aren't they? Now it's everyone from politicians to celebrities who, who scramble to board the latest media bandwagon and to signal their virtue to the world. And much of the comment that fills our airwaves now is here today and gone tomorrow. But even now, 2,000 years later, the voice of Jesus continues to cut through the storm and to speak with the authority of God and with a freshness and a relevance that never grows old. Um, A little while back, Channel 4 ran a series called The New Ten Commandments. Uh, The premise was we don't want God's Ten Commandments anymore. We want to invent our own. And they did all of their research and expert interviews, and then they revealed their conclusion. They said, actually, we only need one commandment. Do to others what you would have them do to you. And no one seemed to notice the irony that they were going back to the teaching of Jesus himself. In verse 12 of our chapter, Uh, I love G.K. Chesterton's analogy. He said, if I found a key on the road and I discovered that it fits a particular lock in my house, I would assume most naturally that the key was made by the lockmaker. And so if I find a set of teachings that's proven itself of such universal validity that it has fascinated and satisfied millions including the best minds in history and the simplest hearts, that it has made itself at home in virtually every culture and inspired masterpieces in virtually every field of art. If such teaching so obviously fits the lock of so many human souls in so many times and in so many places, are they likely to be the work of a deceiver or fool? In fact, it's more likely that they're designed by the heart maker. And the crowds were astonished at the teaching of Jesus because he speaks with all of the authority of the universe maker. And I hope we feel the same this morning. But this is a morning when amazement isn't enough, if I can put it like that, because Jesus deliberately structured this great sermon to leave each one of his hearers and us with a profound choice. He's already announced himself as the one in whom all of the scriptures are fulfilled and by whom God's kingdom is established and through whom we can know God as our father. He's described to us the the privileges of belonging to his kingdom. He's challenged us to live by the standards of his kingdom. But he ends this sermon by leaving a choice ringing in our ears. It's a choice that needs to be made once to make a start in the Christian life. But in another way, it needs to be made every day by every disciple. 
will today be a day upon which I'm not only a hearer, but a doer of the words of my King, the Lord Jesus Christ? The answer to that question will define not only my life, but my eternity. So let's listen in as Jesus sets before us two very different ways to live this morning. The the passage is made up of four contrasting pairs, and we'll look at them in turn. The first is that there are two paths, but only one way. Let me read from verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Well, ours is a a generation of the uncommitted. We're nervous of giving total allegiance or commitment to anyone or anything. But when Jesus speaks about his kingdom, he insists that there is no third way. There are two paths and only two. Notice uh, three quick things with me about the wide road in verse 13. First, access is easy. It's not like an exclusive club with security at the door. The gate is wide and everybody is welcome. Second, the pathway itself is easy as well. Um, Airlines, when we were all back flying again, are always very strict, aren't they, about how much stuff we can take onto a flight. But on broad road airways, there's no baggage restriction at all. Is there some relationship or idol or ambition that's holding you back from seeking first God's kingdom. Well, there's no need to worry, says the person at the check-in counter. You can bring it with you for the ride. There are no hard choices to make here. Third, this broad road is well-traveled. It's lined with cheerleaders, as in the days of Noah, it's full of people who are eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage and getting degrees and planning their next holiday. And there is a comfort, isn't there, in being part of a crowd. But the majority is not always right. Proverbs 14 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. The narrow path is is very different. Uh, The gate is narrow, the road is hard, and it's often lonely. Only those who deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Jesus are found upon it. Our companions are few. One writer says of the narrow path, God's revealed truth imposes a limitation on what we can believe. And God's revealed goodness imposes a limitation on how we behave. And it's easy to to think of those limitations on mind and life as being like chains or fetters that bind us, rather than as warning signs that keep us from danger. And then we have to be honest and say that if we were only thinking of the short term, there would be something very appealing about a life on the broad road. Maybe you grew up in a 
Christian family. And you're even today looking over the fence at the broad road and thinking to yourself, well, it doesn't look too bad over there. Listen to how C.S. Lewis described the way he felt when he, he first turned away from Christianity as a young man. He said, I was soon altering, I believe, to one does feel and oh, the relief of it. From the tyrannous noon of revelation, I passed into the cool evening twilight of higher thought. Where, listen to this bit, there was nothing to be obeyed and nothing to be believed except what was either comforting or exciting. And that, that twin freedom of mind and life is highly seductive. The broad road allows us to set our course in life while still enjoying the security of the crowd. It's no surprise that many drift onto it and many are tempted by it. But friends, not all that glitters is gold. And the saddest thing about the broad road is its destination. Because in verse 13, all who walk on it are heading for destruction. Like drivers who are hurtling down a road, totally unaware that they were about to, to fly off the edge of a cliff. The, the narrow road, by contrast, might appear restrictive now, but it leads to the glorious freedom of being a child of God. And its ultimate destination is life itself. So there are two paths. And Jesus urged his hearers then, he urges us today to enter through the narrow gate, to walk along the narrow way. Elsewhere, you may know he said, I am the gate. I am the way. So really he's saying, come to me and let me lead you. Some of Jesus' audience were, were bystanders in the crowd who'd never yet made that decision. Others were committed disciples. But to all, he's saying there are two paths, but only one way, choose life. Second this morning, there are two teachers, but only one truth. Two teachers, but only one truth. Uh, verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree bears good fruit. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And it's fascinating to me that having told us about the two paths, Jesus should turn straight away to talk about the, the different ministries of a true and false prophet. I, I take it there's a, a bit of progression in Jesus' thought. Because if you want to walk on the right path from point one, then you're going to need to listen to the true teaching. Of point two. Notice, though, the assumption that Jesus makes. 
that there is such a thing as a false prophet or teacher. Uh, I know that the language isn't popular today, but Jesus doesn't merely speak about people with different perspectives or different interpretations or different traditions. He speaks of the true and the false. And he says, beware the false, for the danger is real. It would be easy if every false prophet walked around with a big neon sign around their neck identifying themselves, or if you click on one of their videos on YouTube, your computer buzzes with a virus warning. But frustratingly, false prophets are hard to spot. It seems they are ravenous wolves, but they usually come dressed in sheep's clothing, benign-looking, charming, personable, but deadly. The crucial question then is how do we spot them? And broadly speaking, in this passage and beyond, the New Testament gives us two tests. You have to listen to their words and you have to look at their life. Let me just mention them in turn. You listen to their words because although there are some disputable matters in the Christian faith about which Christians may legitimately disagree, there is nevertheless a definite body of Christian truth which is non-negotiable and not open to interpretation. The New Testament writers call it the faith. And typically the false prophet will either subtract from that body of non-negotiable truth by denying or downplaying some aspect of it, or alternatively they'll add to it with ideas of their own invention or by insisting on their own particular line in a disputable matter. Um, To illustrate the point, I sometimes compare that core block of gospel truth to a pie. And I go for a a steak pie because that's my favorite. And uh, you will know that if you either subtract from a steak pie by leaving out steak or pastry, for example, or you add to the steak pie by introducing, for example, horse, then what you have is no longer a steak pie. And you might be the world's greatest chef, but if you're cooking horse, in pie world at least, you have now become a false chef. Similarly, you might have the most brilliant mind in the world, but if you're subtracting or adding to the core truths of the gospel, if you're denying things that Jesus commands or permitting things that he prohibits, then in Jesus' eyes, you are a false prophet. And so we, we listen to someone's teaching. But here in this sermon, Jesus focuses on the other test, that we also look at their life. And the illustration in verse 16 comes from the world of horticulture. Lots of people have spent lockdown gardening. So you might know that a, a buckthorn bush has, has little black berries on it that look a lot like grapes from a distance. And that a thistle's flower, again from a distance, can look a bit like a, a fig. But of course, any initial confusion that you had between thorn and grape on the one hand or between fig and thistle on the other would fade if you were drinking a glass of buckthorn wine or if you were eating a a pudding made out of thistles and likewise says Jesus you can spot the good or the true prophet because the fruit of their life is unavoidably good 
Whereas the false prophet cannot conceal forever that their own fruit is unavoidably bad. The the fruit here is, I think, primarily ethical. Uh, the, The point is that the false teacher may at first glance appear to be entirely genuine. But sooner or later, their true nature will be revealed. Because just as they failed to teach the narrow way of Jesus, so they will fail to live by it. It's not saying that every false teacher will be involved in public scandal. But a a congregation should be able to watch their leaders making progress in godliness, growing down in humility and poverty of spirit, growing up in maturity and likeness to Christ, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. This isn't an easy test to to apply. In part, that's because it takes time for the fruit to grow and become obvious, years sometimes. And in truth, we don't always know our ministers well enough to see what's going on in their life. It's one of the, the biggest problems with online church. But over time, you will recognize them by their fruit. And if they're not themselves growing in godliness, and if those to whom they minister sit loose to righteousness, then beware, says Jesus. I don't know if you've ever seen a wildlife program that shows a a pack of ravenous wolves attacking some poor animal like a a sheep and how they they rip it apart and gorge upon its carcass. Jesus says that is the false teacher. So be very careful about who you listen to. There are two teachers, but only one truth. Third, there are two hearers, but only one disciple. Two hearers, but only one disciple. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The 18th century um, Bishop J.C. Ryle called these words heart-piercing. And that struck a chord with me. We fast forward to the last day and we learn that just as the true character of a teacher's heart is revealed by the fruit that does or doesn't grow in their life, so too it is for hearers of God's word. And Jesus says that there will be many who arrive at Judgment Day absolutely convinced of the welcome that we will receive, but who will be bitterly disappointed. What's alarming is just how much this group has going for them. They're not atheists who have lived in open mockery of Jesus. It seems that they're orthodox in their Christian belief. They call Jesus Lord. They're active in their Christian service. It's in Jesus' name that they prophesied and drove out demons and performed mighty works. It is scary, though, how close to spiritual reality someone can come 
whilst missing the heart. Because Jesus banishes these people with words of total rejection. I never knew you. Depart from me. I never knew you. That's not, he's not ignorant of their existence. But he is dismissive of their claim. You are no friend of mine, says Jesus. One writer says, this group had done everything except God's will. But that is the key test in verse 21. Do you see the contrast between merely saying and actually doing? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Because someone might talk a good game. They might even be relentlessly active in service. But there is no substitute for godliness. Am I poor in spirit? And meek and merciful? Do I seek first the kingdom of God and hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do I love people? Or at root level, am I a, a worker of lawlessness? In the sense that God's law, God's will are an irrelevance to me. That is that I just do what I want. And if that fits with God's will, great. And if it doesn't, then so be it. Because what matters at root for this person is how I want to live and not what the word of God says. Back in chapter 3, John told the crowds to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And all through Matthew, we find this same emphasis. A repentant life is an obedient life. It's not just about what I believe, it's about what I do. Because repentance isn't about feeling sorry for sin, but about turning away from it and turning towards a life of obedience to God. And the working of God's grace in someone's life will inevitably lead to increased obedience to God. No one is ever saved because of their obedience. I hope we're clear on that. We're not saved by works. But neither is anyone saved without obedience. Because if I know Jesus, his presence in my life will be transforming. Well, they are heart-piercing words. And we need to be careful how we apply them. Because they are meant to challenge the complacent without ever unsettling the contrite. No Christian is ever going to be perfect. Jesus knew that. We know that. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Nothing that Jesus says here contradicts where his sermon began. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who acknowledge and admit their sin and mourn for it and confess it. So this test is not meant to disqualify the one who is relying on Christ and his cross for their salvation. The one who's praying for the, the grace and strength to live a godly life. But if I am someone who might be very active in public church life, but who sits very loose to God's word in private if I'm impenitently careless about sin, 
If I don't at heart really care what God says, I just want to live my life my way, then I need to wake up. Because the issue is not how well I'm managing my spiritual reputation on earth, but about the welcome I will or won't receive in heaven. Do I actually know Christ? If you're asking, how do I know whether I'm someone who's humbly battling for for godliness despite my failures or someone who doesn't know Christ, the, the odd rule of thumb is probably a good one. The fact that you're worried about that is probably a good sign. It's the one who doesn't care, the one who presumes who should be worried. I want to say they tell God how you're you're feeling this morning, how his word makes you feel. Ask him for mercy and it will be given to you. Seek his grace and you will find it. Knock And the door of heaven will be opened to you. Christ has never turned away a repentant sinner. And he never will. So come to him today. You may like to talk to some of the leaders in the church here, one of the elders, about that or a trusted Christian friend. But for now, let's move on to our fourth and and final contrast. There are two houses but only one refuge. Two houses, but only one refuge. Verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew uh, beating on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. They're famous verses, aren't they? But once again, it's striking that if you're only to look at these two houses above ground level, there might be very little to tell them apart and we can picture two people both kind both courteous both stable in their life and happy in their homes both your spot here the words of Jesus but only one does what Jesus says only one repents only one believes and that distinction makes all the difference in the world the wind and the rain aren't, I think, a reference to the, the, the general storms of life in a fallen world. They, they point us forward to the day of judgment that was mentioned in verse 22. The flood takes us back to the days of Noah. And in Ezekiel and elsewhere, storms are another metaphor for God's judgment. So the lesson again is that there is only one way to be safe on that final day. The angel said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Have you done that? If I haven't, the house of my life might look 
and feel secure to me now, but it will fall and great will be the fall of it. If you have, it will never fall because it's founded on the solid rock of Jesus Christ himself. Well, we've seen the contrasts. I wonder, how are you, how am I personally responding to the words of Jesus today? The crowds were were right to be amazed at Jesus' teaching. He speaks with the authority and the insight of the heart maker, the universe maker. But amazement isn't enough. Action is needed. And he leaves this choice ringing in our ears. It's a choice we have to make once to make a start in the Christian life. But it's also a choice that needs to be made every day by every disciple. We've all heard Jesus' word, but will we do what he says? That is the will of his Father in heaven. The gate is narrow and the way is hard, but it leads to life. Like me, you'll be very aware I suspect even this morning of your failures ways in which you've stumbled but the fact that I trip up on the narrow road doesn't mean that I'm on the broad road means I need to pick myself up and to claim again the forgiveness of Jesus Christ that is sufficient to wash away every sin to set my face to heaven fix my eyes upon Jesus and to run the race that he set before me. We end this series in the Sermon on the Mount where we begin, where Jesus wants us to be an anchor point every day of our life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. And again, our Father, we confess that if you marked our transgressions, not one of us would stand. But you are the Lord whose nature is to have mercy. Indeed, you so loved the world that you sent your one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so we thank you again that the Lord Jesus has done all that is necessary for us to be received as your children in this life to be kept by you and to be welcomed by you into your new creation the perfect kingdom of heaven thank you that our place in heaven depends not upon us and our work but upon jesus and his nevertheless we feel the the burden of this choice this morning we see these two paths before us but we know there's only one way Help us, please, to walk on the narrow way. Even when the going is tough, even when we've stumbled, be merciful to us and keep us on that way, we pray. We know there are two teachers, but only one truth. Help us, please, to listen to the true teaching of your word, to take heed to what we hear, that our minds would be full of your truth, that we would never ourselves add to it or subtract from it, but that your word might be our only rule in 
faith and in conduct. We know there are two hearers, but only one disciple. Make us not just hearers, but doers of your word, we pray. And two houses, but only one refuge. So we pray, our Father, that each and every day you would help us be those who draw back to Jesus, who build our lives upon him and his words, and who by your grace delight to do what he says until the day when we see him face to face and are welcomed into your new creation, because blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.